Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 103, I Know This Fool. This week we're discussing series 7, episode 8 of Doctor Who, Cold War, and the season 1 finale of Angel, to Shan Shu in L.A. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Doctor Who and yeah. the Cold War. All right. Cold uh-huh. War style. <laughs> so I was saying just a few moments ago how I, I, there's a very strong Hunt for Red October vibe uh, uh-huh. to this episode. And then you said you would never saw that movie. So <laughs> that didn't quite... No. Uh, you, you were just like, all right. <laughs> I, 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 th- I believe you. <laughs> um, yeah. So you'll have to tell me about it well, because... Uh, so... I, I mean, I, I get the period that it's referencing, but that's um, not a movie or a genre that I feel like I have a lot mm-hmm. of direct experience yeah, with. Have you, have you so. seen any Tom Clancy movies? Like, movies written from his stories, anyway? I mean... Maybe, yeah. but I can't even really tell you. Yeah. So probably not. Uh, all right. <laughs> Very interesting. So yeah, um, Hunt for Red October is a... So the Red October is a Russian submarine. Um, and the main storyline is that the um, captain of... And, it, and it's like, you know, super secret, like, uh, has all the bells and whistles, you know, new technology, and it's like a stealth submarine, so like nobody can hear it, kind yeah. of thing, or it's very hard to hear. Um, and the secret, or the 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 plot of it is that the Russian captain um, of the submarine, something happened, like I think his family was killed or something, like a political incident, and so he decides mm-hmm. he wants to defect, but he knows that if he says anything to anyone like he'll get killed or captured or whatever. So he, um, you know, being like a stealth submarine, he's able to basically navigate off of everyone's radar, both U S and Russian alike, and basically just appears like in, you know, some, uh, U S like Bay, like kind of out of the way or whatever. And, and, but of course it like creates crises and, and, all sorts of like nuclear tensions and threats of, Mm -hmm. of missiles and whatever being shot every which way. So, um, so some of that same kind of tension, uh, you know, as, as we see on here also, uh, have you ever seen Crimson Tide? Um, that movie, another submarine movie. Uh, about about nuclear, the the cold war submarine movies are apparently, to to pun on it, they're off my yeah, radar. Yeah, I don't but. know if Crimson Tide is actually technically Cold War, but it's it, and something about red coloring apparently with uh, <laughs> um, no that one referring to the Alabama, which is a U.S. sub, obviously, um, mm-hmm. and more of a mutiny situation, which also mm-hmm. sort of occurs a, a bit on here or a potential mu- mm-hmm. mutiny situation that, uh, you know, in right. this episode. So like there, I definitely follows some of those like submarine tension genre conventions um, sure, and throwing in sure. the cold war stuff definitely has that Tom Clancy 
you know, major superpowers. Uh, is there a different kind of superpower other than a major one? Um, you know, superpowers sort of at odds with each other. And, you know, given one puff of the wind in the wrong direction could, you know, lead mm-hmm. to mutually assured destruction, which is, of course, right. the, the classic phrase that gets repeated here. Um, yeah. Of of sort of Cold War tensions. So, um, yeah, I mean, reminded me of that. But then when you mentioned like, oh, so it's sort of like, uh, I, I don't remember exactly how you phrase it, but kind of like, you know, a theft of the story. It's it's like, no, I, I do think that actually this is a different enough story that like you get you get the feel of, of those. Like definitely there's callbacks to that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I do, I also liken this to... Um, kind of similar uh in maybe not so much in tone but maybe in um purpose or in uh effect of um Mm -hmm. all quiet on the western front which of course Mm -hmm. is a story about sort of the german side of world war Mm -hmm. one and uh the situation of having young men going off to war and realizing that no matter what side you're on, war is kind of stupid and, uh, you know, uh, pointless and all of that kind of stuff. So like, this is, this is sort of the cold war Russian version of that in a way where we're seeing like, you know, there's the guy who loves Western culture and there's the captain who, you know, wants, wants to do good and believes he's doing good, but, also understands the sort of import of his situation and realizes like you can't always keep the tension so high and that there are times to actually step back. And that's sort of the -hmm. mark of a good captain rather than just being willing to fire on sight. And then you have like the political officer who's, you know, pressing for his own sort of ideals if you can call him that, mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. doesn't, isn't, isn't the one who's taking a step back and looking at the big picture. And aren't you glad he's not actually the one in charge? He's a bit more trigger yeah. happy, you know, Yeah, but um, also like, because he's like the activist idealist kind of guy, he's not the mm-hmm. pragmatic. Well, no, I don't actually want everyone in the world to die from nuclear annihilation, right? right. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So, um, right. And, 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 and he's more the subordinate, whereas, you know, it's not casting right. the captain of the submarine as just a, you know, a Soviet villain, you know, like mustache twirling, mm-hmm. like kind of, you know, a Bond villain type, you yeah. know, stereotype or whatever that he actually, like you said, is the more, he's in charge for a reason. He's, a, he's the more level headed uh wanting you know yes patriotic to his own nation and his own cause and you know believing in it but that doesn't mean that he's ready to launch the missiles right. either you know that the, the cold war never actually did interrupt into actual you know missiles fired mm-hmm. so you had some restraint being shown on both sides and maybe um like we were talking about those more Cold War period, you know, stories were being written and made while it was still happening, mm-hmm. or at least while it was very recent memory. Um, whereas this being maybe a bit more separated historically, 
is more willing to kind of look at it as a little bit more fair-minded and and look at the individual soldiers and see that like you said when you actually get down to the individuals involved they're maybe not so different from the people on the other side of the fence really you know ideologically and politically their nations may have been different but individual um, but, people, but in, yeah. But individual people, individual soldiers are not wanting to annihilate millions of people. They don't want to die. They don't, mm-hmm. you know, most of them are pretty much just like yeah. us. And, so, yeah, and, and you get the the spectrum of of the different soldiers in those three kind of principle, you know, the kind of very Western-loving, you know, intellectual professor you know, on the one side who loves pop music and everything. Um, and then the very, you know, I guess more nationalistic officer. Um, and then, you know, you get the kind of moderate captain in the middle who has to kind of make the decisions and listen to these two viewpoints and find some sort of middle ground. So, yeah. Um, and actually, I just I just wanted to look up. I just looked up the date for Hunt for Red October, and it was written in 1984, or published in 1984. Okay. So it's right so smack go. in the middle of the timeline that they're looking at And I at think here. they say this is 1983, don't they, in the, in the oh, maybe. card at the... I think when it first opens, it says, it gives 1983 as the date. So yeah, so we're looking... Right in there. Right here. The, the movie came out in 1990 so ostensibly after the cold war was over but still in very recent memory still very very Um, recent and actually i mean i so i went through a phase in high school and like early college where i read a bunch of tom clancy novels um hunt for red october is definitely one of the more readable ones kind of as he goes mm-hmm. along and uh his his main character is jack ryan who's like a cia analyst who um sort of threads you know through all the stories of mm-hmm. at least through many of his novels um if not all of them i certainly have not yeah. read all of his novels but like as as they go on he, he sort of well, I was going to say he has the Stephen King syndrome, but I think he actually came before Stephen King. So, like, like sure. the Tom at, Clancy syndrome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as as he goes along, like, just each novel is longer and longer and longer, and like spends more and more time describing like sort of filler, but ultimately mm. useless, like technical details about like you know, like entire like five hundred words on like the latch of the gun that he has, you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff where it's just like, all right, Mm -hmm. come on. (laughs) Like it might be very technically correct, but it's also very boring and whatever. But the hunt for red October is actually, I I read it after the movie and I mean, I kind of like the movie is very well done and I kind of like them both sort of Mm -hmm. equally, um, which is not usual. You know, it's usually one or the other, almost always yeah. the book although there are a few cases mm-hmm. where that's not the case but like yeah. for them to be sort of equally weighted um i would say and and both in a likable manner <laughs> um uh-huh. is fairly rare i think so i yeah i would say definitely, no, definitely. A, a, what at least a movie you should watch i i won't blame you if you don't hunt down the book but at least the movie is worth sure. seeing um which i'm surprised it's given worth the, the two hours of my given, time given yeah. your I, I feel like you have a fairly extensive movie, uh, you know, culture, yeah, sure, uh, but I've got you know, education, so 
I'd like to think so, but I have blind spots sure. just like everybody sure. else. Anyway, um, not, not a criticism. I just just a surprise. Um, I would have expected that might be one you'd seen. Anyway. Sure. Well, I love a good I love a good Sean Connery movie where he can play any mm-hmm. nationality with a Scottish accent. That's yeah. always worth right. recommending. You right. know, um, Greek, Russian. You know, you name it. Uh, you name it. He's done it. That's talent. Um, so yeah, I'll have to put that on my list. Um, I guess like so. Yeah, I mean, definitely having not read or seen that, I didn't necessarily connect the very specific kind of parallels to those stories. Um, but I think broadly, um, even without having seen those particular, um, you know, examples of this kind of thing, you still get the sense of, okay, we're in a, we're in a genre, just mm-hmm. like the Western or, you know, um, you know, you know, the gangster whatever else kind of genres you can think of that the doctor sort of drops into occasionally. Um, And I guess it's worth pointing out too, that um, it's a Mark Gatiss episode again, which he tends to do these sort of historical nostalgia pieces, you know, that draw very heavily on a time period Hmm. or like a particular, um, you know, way of doing. He's done, I think night terrors was set in the modern uh, era, but everything, every other episode he's done in Doctor Who has been a historical piece. Um, and also I wanted to point out the fact that we've now gone back to, not for the first three episodes of the season, but with the first three full-time Clara episodes, we've gone back to the introducing the new companion formula of modern-day London alien invasion future you know space adventure and now historical um oh that's right you know so we're back in the old whipping out the old russell t davies formula i did not again. even pick up on that but that's very and interesting it, and it sneaks it sneaks up on you because it, that's usually the way they open a season but so right. maybe this we is need to mid-season refine, so but maybe we need to refine that and say okay that's not necessarily how you open a season but maybe it's a good way to introduce a companion is to kind of give them something of each of the you know what is the range of types of stories we can do and then we can start to get into maybe a little bit more interesting things after this um like you know that's kind of the first three episodes introduce the companion to the concept and then we get into like the nitty-gritty like you know more detailed although of course in a very moffat style even that even in following the formula, he doesn't quite follow the formula because we've already sure. had two other episodes before that in which Clara, but not quite yes. Clara, <laughs> is, exactly. is introduced. So it's like, so you're right, like this iteration of Clara as like the sort of full-time companion, not the potential companion of the yeah. previous two iterations of Clara, um, yeah. does follow that formula. Yeah. But there's also, it's also like that idea of like, well, but we did actually see her or something her like before. her before now and we still don't know right. what's really going on with right it. well and and you get okay like iteration number one is futuristic iteration number two is from the past and now iteration number three the full time is of the present so even she kind of spans all the you know so 
I think that it kind of is the the mo of um, Moffat is he will stand on the Davies foundation like you know without hesitation, but also he's always constantly tweaking it and revising it and subverting mm -hmm. it and everything. And he'll use it when it's he'll throw it out of the window when when that suits him. But he also knows when it's time to kind of dust off, you know, some of the the well-worn ideas and bring them back out too. Sure. So, um, you know, just kind of worth pointing out, I think. Um, so we actually spent more so, more time on the situation than I thought we would, but um, that's fine. No, no worries. It's uh, actually, I I I do want to say I did like this episode. Maybe not like my favorite of the season so far or whatever, but like it, sure. I thought it was pretty decent. Um, mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk a little bit. I, I think actually what's interesting is that like what I was just saying about the all quiet on the Western front feel to it of, you know, seeing the other side is uh, you're also kind of getting that with Scalback too, in a way of, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's, it would be odd to say his humanness, but in a way kind of like aliens mm -hmm. can be human too, right? Like this is the, right. the, you know, what do I mean by humans? I mean, aliens, you know, aliens, like, yeah. like this is, this is seeing that as scared and alone and, you know, potentially dangerous as he is like, mm -hmm. he, he ends up making like the same choice and it is, you know, it's because he's thinking about his daughter and because, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's the implication anyway. Like we don't ever get him admitting that, but sure. that's like, you know, especially when you get like Clara singing at the end and, and you know, that kind yeah. of stuff, like it's obviously, <laughs> you know, Skaldak isn't a fan of Duran Duran or anything. Like it's not the actual song right. that is, is being, uh, sung that kind of triggers, but it's the fact of the singing and and mm -hmm. that that you know I like that idea of the music being sort of um, a cross cultural thing because that's what you also get with the professor is that it's the right. music that becomes not an alienation, not like oh that's Western music you're not allowed to, but it becomes a, 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 a you know coalescing factor of you know mm -hmm. he, here's a shared interest and even like not just not just in um space you know in in like from country to country like globally but also in time because you get clara being like oh yeah we sing that you know at karaoke nights and hen parties and that kind right. of, so it like music transcends like all these different dimensions um including the five thousand year old you know, ice warrior dimension <laughs> that, you know, sure. that he's, you know, talk about a throwback. Like you're not just talking about like a couple decades old, but just like in that instance, again, it's not the specific instance of a song or a specific song itself, but it's mm -hmm. the idea of music and the very sort of, you know, thing that music creates. Um, so I, I, yeah, and I, I like think... that aspect to it anyway. Um, a couple things there. One thing specifically about the song, um, Hungry Like the Wolf is kind of an interesting choice. Um, I mean, obviously it fits the, the period and everything. Um, but, you know, I don't know how much this, again, Critfic, um, you know, 
how much that matters, you know, how, how much this, these lyrics in this song was chosen intentionally or whatever, but you know, the, the wolf is kind of a significant idea in Doctor Who too. So you get this idea of, you know, whenever you hear a wolf in Doctor Who now, you have right. to hear a kind of bad wolf echo. Um, but also for Clara, the, the lyrics she sings in particular when she's humming in at the end is about lost and unfound. Right. And you remember from the previous episode, her whole emphasis of um, her fear of getting lost and how that was sort of the thing she was most afraid of as a, as a child. And that now she's scared of, she's kind of made her peace with that, that she says, I'm scared of lots of things, but not of getting lost anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, and you connect that too with her um, kind of obsession with traveling. The fact that she, for somebody who's, you know, maybe biggest phobia is being lost, she carries around her book of, you know, all the places she's going to see, you know, and plan to travel the world and now is kind of traveling time and space. That's a little, you know that's a good way to get lost is to like hop in the TARDIS, you know, and go with the doctor all yeah. over the place. So and it's kind of, I think significant that she picks out that line to hum when she's most afraid is lost and unfound. So, yeah. And, and of course that's, that's also the thing that applies to Skaldak too, right? He was lost and now is found in that sort yeah, of way found. too. You know? Yeah. Like, um, yeah, no, you, what you said too, just about the fact of, like her traveling, not just like around the world, but like through all space and time with the doctor. Um, one, this is the episode where that becomes real to her, right? Like she even says mm. like, oh, this is like, oh, people can actually die. <laughs> you know, like yeah. this is not just a trip to the park or whatever. Um, yeah. But also not that she knows this, but we know one what happened to the previous iterations of her, like we were just talking about, mm -hmm. but two, also what happened to the last set of companions that the doctor had, yeah, uh, and with their being lost, you know, back in time. So, like, there's yeah, from from us as viewers and sort of from the unknown aspect, you know, that Clara's unaware of, uh, yeah, there's even more sort of there's risk a, there. There's a big irony yeah. there, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, and the I guess the other thing too, um, with Skaldak, the um, you know the the universality of the music and everything, but also I think just the connection to Clara that like it's it's the daughter that he's remembering, and it seems to be that Clara's the one who can kind of get through to him a bit. That it's you know her. Uh, she kind of asked him, you know, when she begged him not to kill the professor, you know, why did he do that? That he kind of could have killed him and didn't, um, and seems to kind of listen to her. So, you know, of course, then at the end, it's her asking him for mercy and her maybe humming the tune that are the things that convince him to show mercy. Mm. Yeah. Which goes back to earlier in the episode when, you know, the doctor and the captain are kind of arguing about who will go in to talk to Skaldak. And she's like, well, obviously it's got to be me. Like, I'm the well, only right. one who can do yeah. it. And it turned that, but, you know, at that point, it's, you know, she's just the mouthpiece for the doctor, basically. 
But it's when mm-hmm. she sort of relies on her own intuition yeah. and knowledge and and instinct or whatever. That's when that's what actually works. Like it's you know when she's right. being the doctor's puppet, it's not working out so well. <laughs> like everyone no. knows what's going on and. Scalavac's not really having any of it, but it's when she sort of relies on her own, you know, devices that that it actually is a good has thing. More has more of an more impact, effect, yeah. yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, so with Scaldac, I think um, we can move on to more on the Doctor and Clara, but I just wanted to bring up um, that... So the Ice Warriors are a classic... Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so they were, whatever, right? yeah, pretty popular classic uh, monster, I guess, or alien. Um, so they were used four separate times in the classic series between the second and third Doctors. Um, and actually, uh, Gatiss had wanted to bring them back for a while, and Moffat kept telling him no, because he to him, they were the epitome of every... Uh, easily ridiculed cliche of the Doctor Who monster. They're really big. They're slow, you know, so they're not, like, very physically threatening because you can just sort of run away from them. They have, you know, these hissy voices, which are kind of, you know, often made fun of, um, you know, and they're just kind of, you know, the, the rubbery suits. He just felt like this is exactly the kind of classic monster that, you know, maybe has rightfully been sort of <laughs> sure. done away with. You know, when people would kind of make fun of the Doctor Who monster, it's the Ice Warriors that they were kind of, you know, thinking of, or that's one of the examples. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, so he wouldn't let uh, Mark Gatiss use them until uh, Gatiss came up with this conceit that what you see on the outside isn't actually what they look like, but it, the armor, um, which I think is a really effective tool because I remember this episode coming out and um, them teasing that, oh, we have some twist on the, the Ice Warriors that, you know, you classic fans won't see coming. And so they kind of didn't necessarily uh, say beforehand what that would be. Right. So then, you know, halfway through, you get this idea that, it actually got out of its armor and we don't know what it looks like. You know, it could be anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I like that moment of the doctor saying, uh, actually, I've never seen it out of its armor before, you know? So, mm-hmm. you know, and we never see the whole thing. I think it has a pretty good less is more yeah. sort of, um, yeah, you no, know, I was going to mention that even, and even I think even what we see of like the head at the end is about, pushing it as far as you'd want to go. Like, I think just the hands coming down from, like, the piping is more effective than, you know, when we actually see its face and it's talking and everything. Um, So, you know, the fact that he came up with a twist on it that made it more interesting and more threatening and, like, you know, something you didn't expect. And suddenly, you know, the cliche of the big, slow, lumbering monster becomes something quick that can hide and attack you from all sides and maybe you don't and, know which direction it's coming from and reptilian and and i mean yeah he says reptile from mars or whatever like so we know yeah. that that's 
definitely part of right. it. But and but the idea of that, like they can crawl anywhere. It can crawl upside down on the ceiling, you know, or and is and is quick. Like it's not just like yeah. He scurries silently and can just sort of appear out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and it and it kind of links them more closely to the traditional idea of the little green men from Mars. Mm. Like it's sort of like you don't associate these big you know, oafish ice warriors with Mars, but you can maybe see how this evolved into the idea of the little green man and, and how what's inside the armor is right. and, quite different than what's And even on the makes outside. more sense that the armor is exoskeleton because they're ice warriors. They need especially if they're cold blooded, you know, reptiles. Right. They need something that's gonna keep them warm. Protect um, them. Um and and also worth pointing out that in the waters of Mars, they're referenced, you know, I think we don't mm. see them, but the doctor mentions the fact that there are these ancient glaciers and there was a, a mighty warrior race and that, you know, maybe they sort of might've trapped the flood in the snow so that they couldn't, you know, escape. So you know, he kind I of honestly forgot them. all about that. I, I didn't even make that connection. It was a long time ago, but it's worth it's worth pointing out that when they go to these planets, they do kind of name check, you know, the little references mm -hmm. of of monsters past. So, very um, interesting. Yeah, so I think pretty effective update of a classic monster. Like it actually comes up with a pretty clever way to pay some homage to the original concept, but also you know, find a way to do something new with it. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, as far as the Doctor and Clara go, we can probably move on to their characters a little bit more specifically. Yeah. So, hmm. yeah, where do we begin? So, Let's start with the doctor, I guess. Um, I like, well, first of all, I like at the beginning, um, sort of a throwaway where, um, you know, the doctor helps, like, at least slow the sinking of the submarine so that they don't, mm -hmm. you know, crash and everyone dies. And Zukov, you know, the captain, Zukov, says... It seems we owe you our lives, whoever you are. And the doctor says, I'll hold you to that. Might come in handy. And, of course, that yeah. does come in handy. Like, you know, it's a typical, it's a yeah. uh, Chekhov's promise, <laughs> you know. like Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the idea of by saving their lives sort of preemptively and um, not preemptively, like it's in the moment, but like... Um, Proactively, I guess, maybe might be mm -hmm. a better word, uh, you know, by saving their lives sort of proactively and helping out right away. Like, that's what kind of develops the trust that yeah. later when, you know, the captain is getting scared and does sort of at least is tempted to kind of, you know, use more force or whatever, um, even though he's not the one who like it's, uh, you know, who actually cattle prods the guy. Is it the it's Stepashin, Stepashin. I think the yeah. yeah and um you know even though the captain's not like the one who actually does that stuff the the fact that like 
like he might be willing to go along with it if the doctor hadn't saved them and sort of been counseling right. him and you know that kind of stuff so there there is that idea of yeah just the doctor by being his normal self mm-hmm. and helping you know people regardless of who they are like he doesn't have a particular dog in the i mean we know right. that he sort of always kind of protects england but like you know it's also the sure. world like he he cares yeah. about people you know, in general russia yeah. just as much as england presumably so um yeah just that idea of he's just being himself but like he's also very willing to sort of take advantage of his own yeah uh heroism to make sure things well, right. don't go like, bad down the road <laughs> he's definitely i mean he is and that's a funny thing about like the the doctor's kind of that line between the heroism and the anti-heroism like he is sort of very free with his you know he, on the one hand he just does it without motivation at all mm-hmm. but on the other hand he's not above you know keeping track of who he has done a favor and calling in those right. favors you know and like and we've seen that of like going to the various people that he's done things for and sort of calling them back you know yeah, when it years later you know when it suits yeah. him years yeah. later you know um so you know there is the kind of like altruistic well of course he's a hero but there's no kind of like well my work here is done you know i don't yeah. ask for any you know thanks right, right. it's no it's not like a kind of superman thing it's right. like no there's that little bit of like i will remember this and i will remind you of this when it is necessary yep. um you know and if it's not necessary now it might be necessary right you know or useful like you know 10 years down the road or something so yeah um no so it, it, that is a good little throwaway reference right um, and yeah like like not even i mean in this particular case it's like okay it comes in handy within the 40 minutes of the episode but yeah, yeah, like it could totally be years down the road or whatever. Um, yeah. Um, I guess it's worth mentioning too uh, that the the kind of, you referenced it earlier, but the conversation about um, the the ice warrior being able to detect the you know that they are soldiers Mm -hmm. you know and and the doctor saying you know you can't you can't go in there he knows you're a soldier he'd smell it on you and of course the the retort is he wouldn't smell it on you you know so you know just kind of another reminder of the doctor's sort of pseudo military kind of abilities or status you know um he doesn't necessarily like to think of himself that way but you know we have a soldier here kind of referring to the doctor that way. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I think the important part there is that Zukov is, um, it's not like he's questioning it. Like, I mean, it, it is a quite like, it's in the form of a question, but he's not like, sure. he's not like saying, denying the validity doctor? of, like he's saying you are a soldier doctor and he would smell yeah. it on you. Like it's, it's very much yeah. a, yeah, a de- a, even though it's in the form of a question, it's very much a declaration of the doctor. And the doctor doesn't 
like deny it either. Like the, right. I mean, they both know that the other is a soldier in some form or fashion, and that mm-hmm. either of them going in to you know talk to um, <clears throat> Zaldak. Is that right? Did I say that right? Skaldak. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not right. Um, I was thinking Zukov and said Zaldak. Anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, that either one of them going in to talk to Skaldak would have the same effect. And that's, you know, why mm-hmm. then Clara is like, well, clearly I'm the only choice. Because who else are you going to find on a military submarine? <laughs> Everyone there is going to be a soldier, unless, right. except for you know, obviously the doctor and Clara and even the doctor is like you said, kind of a soldier. So this sure. is, yeah, this is the, just that, that very, like, it's not like they're kind of proving their point to each other about why neither of them can go in because they both can tell each other. I mean, Zukov, of course, cause he's in full regalia and you know, he's the captain of the ship or whatever, but like, Right, he's not denying it. He's just saying you're yeah. no better a choice yeah. than I am. So what the very fact does that he make? can detect yeah. that the doctor has this some sort of military bearing of his mm-hmm. own, like sort of proves that, like, well, then yes, of course, Skaldak can do that as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I also, uh, you know, I guess wanted to point out too this kind of continuing another little theme going on here um, is that he you know, asks Skaldak to have mercy, you know, there, what, and again, like, another parallel between the Doctor and the monsters and everything, we have, you know, Skaldak, who, my, my world is gone, my family's gone, I'm the last of my kind, you know, never gonna, you know, see anybody from my family again, um, you know, and his response is to just, take it out on, you know, these humans, or he thinks about it, and the doctor says, no, there is something else for you, there's Mercy, um, which again takes me back to a town called Mercy, um, mm. you know, and this idea of when you have nothing left, how do you sort of respond to that? Um, do you, you know, take it out on those people do you become one of the monsters and become someone who preys on people or do you become someone who maybe has the capacity for that but chooses to be heroic and sacrificial and merciful and everything Mm -hmm. um so again you've kind of got the doctor kind of trying to talk some sense into somebody um but you get another you know iteration of the the time war problem of you know pushing the button you know to maybe destroy a small group in order to save a larger group you know so you have him kind of wanting to avoid it but trying to talk himself into the idea of i will blow us up if i have to um you know and and like you know, the ninth doctor said about the time war, like, you know, he survived, you know, not by choice. So the idea being that he maybe had, a, you know, thought that he would sort of go down with the ship. But here, it definitely seems like if you push that nuke button, there's no, right. you know, real escaping that. So, you know, the doctor being very definitely confronted with the idea of 
how far would you be willing to go? And specifically, would you take yourself and your companion down with the ship if you had to? Right. Um, so. Yep. Um, but before, so before we move on to Clara, though, I think we need to talk about probably the most important thing about the doctor, which is um, the Barbie doll. <laughs> uh, Clearly the most I, important part. I'm assuming there's not really any, like, it's kind of like the banana thing. Like, he just happens to have it in his pocket. And, in his pocket. And, like, there, he, his pockets are bigger he, on he the inside. He seems to have a clear delight in retrieving it. But, yeah. like, we don't know why that is or anything. No. Like, I, I was just racking my brain. I'm like, is there anywhere, like, where there's a Barbie doll before this that, like, we've seen? I can't. I definitely think this is a one-off reference. So I won't say that, you know, crazy fun theories couldn't be made out of what does it mean, mm -hmm. but it certainly is not a callback to anything. Um, it's his beloved Barbie doll and make of that what you will. Fair enough. He does seem very, very happy. Boys can play with dolls too. End. There's no problem. And we That's know true. that the doctor is just a big boy. This is true. Um, I also, too, the other quick thing is that you're always looking for excuses why that they can't just get out in the TARDIS and everything. So, you know, this time is this idea of the hads, um, which right. is another classic thing of, I think, I don't remember which doctor had it, but, you know, that was an old feature of the TARDIS that it would sort of relocate. So here, you know, he sort of sheepishly admits to Clara that he was tinkering and reset the hads. So, you know, it it sort of took itself off to, you know, the South Pole. And I love that moment when they all have a laugh and then he kind of mockingly, you know, goes the ha ha ha, like he's not, he's not joking. They actually have to go to the <laughs> South Pole. Right. Like, you know, they all think, you know, yeah. oh, doctor, you're so such can, a hoot. And he's like, um, actually, uh, yeah, can, yeah. can we have a So lift? that's like, <laughs> yeah, like literally, um, so that's like the other thing is, I, I'd love to know how they get there. Like, is there like a long trek right. where they actually have to Did like this take like make months or whatever? Yeah, right. Because even right. like in a submarine, that's not a short trip. Like, no, no. <laughs> and so it does kind of like, huh? I wonder. You know, I'm sure some people have filled in that gap. You know, with like some fan fiction or something of like, how did they get down there? Did they take the submarine or did they have to like, you know? find another way how long did it take them um i'm kind of because i mean it's kind of a funny idea yeah i'm curious i want to know that now i want to know if anyone's mapped that like timed how long it would take like an average like military submarine to to get between the to poles. go from one pole <laughs> to the other i mean you can't get to the south pole in a submarine because it's a continent but well, right. you know as close as possible i guess to like the south pole um Right. And I wonder even how far, like, I mean, obviously the the North Pole is ocean, but like, it's still a lot of ice. Like, I wonder how far down that ice goes. Like, can you actually get a submarine underneath it? <laughs> I don't know. They seem to here, at I least in the part of it. But um, yeah, or close, right? Right. I, guess. Close. I mean, they call it's it under the, the Arctic Circle somewhere. Right. Um. So yeah, but that always just struck me funny as. They never, they just sort of leave it at the episode of like, well, 
so we have to get to the TARDIS somehow and, you know, leave your imagination to sort of fill in the blank of how they do that. That um, is pretty funny. And so once again, though, we get the sense of uh, at the beginning that this is not where they were meant to go. <laughs> uh, well, right, Viva Las yeah. Vegas, uh, he yeah. says, coming out of the... <laughs> The, presuming, of course, that that's where they were going was to Las Vegas. Right, right. Um, similar to, uh, oh, where where were they going in in the one with the Silurians when Amy gets pulled down? Uh huh. Oh, uh, Rio yeah, or something, something like that. Yeah, like, yeah, I yeah, like Amy's like I dressed, dressed for, Rio, for Rio. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. Clara's in her kind of like cocktail dress. Right, and it's stuff. that same kind of like, oh, this is definitely not where yeah. we were meant to be going um not what we had in mind and were they going to vegas in the 80s or was it supposed to be like i don't know <laughs> I don't, it was it could have vegas been a wilder time in the 80s or something like what you know. yeah like it's like they could have been going for casino but they end up in the hunt for red october it's like <laughs> right exactly <laughs> they're shooting for one genre and kind of just missed it by a bit um yeah i don't Being know funny. but yeah, and it is kind of funny that you don't get any setup. You just get them sort of falling out of the TARDIS, yeah, like, yeah. you know. And um, there's no... A very kind of economical way of doing un, it. Unlike the Amy stuff with Rio, like, there's no mention from Clara. And maybe this is a good segue into Clara, you know, for mm. her character. Like, there's not the same kind of, like, oh, we're not where we're supposed to be. She is more of a, all right, let's roll with it. Like, let's... Go with Yeah, the let's see what's going on here. Yeah, Amy has a bit more attitude. Like, if she meant to be somewhere, you're going to kind of hear it a bit mm -hmm. more, you know, if the plans uh, went a different way. <laughs> went whereas, south or north, as it were. Yes. Um, whereas, you're right, Clara is maybe a bit more uh, flexible in that way. At least, seems to be so at far. Least, and at least in this situation. In this, I yeah. mean, admittedly, it's like a pretty... They pretty much show up and are immediately trapped and in terrible danger. So, you know, not a lot of time to be focusing on, you know, the other things, but, uh, but I think that's, that's a fair generalization that, you know, she has a, you know, that her personality is maybe a little bit less kind of no less spunky than Amy, but she's not necessarily as outspoken in what she, you know, or or even in like those kinds of things that she'll voice. Yeah, I like guess. if things aren't going my way, I'm going to let you know about it. <laughs> right. Um, which is maybe what you meant by outspoken. Sure. Um, so so yeah, so we get, um, you know, with the whole, you know, this is the the. This series of episodes, the first few, are the, mm -hmm. um, you know, classic introduction and new companion. Like, we do get some of the abbreviated stuff with that. Um, one we already sort of mentioned was just the, you know, that moment of realization that this isn't all just fun and games. Like, there yeah. are actual dangerous things that can happen. And not to say, like... Like, I mean, certainly the last episode, like, there was a dangerous element to the you know, angry sun god, planet god thing, like, destroying right, that might have engulfed the universe. But, yeah, like, yeah. you also get the sense... That's a more... 
that's a more abstract kind of well, idea, yeah, and you, I think. Right, you get the more... You, there's definitely a grandiosity to it that makes it mm. feel like more mythic. Like you just know everything's going to come out all right. And like mm-hmm. she's... She doesn't really seem scared by it. Like she... Mm-hmm. You know, she's jumping on the moped thing, you know, yeah. and like flying through the void and like, you know, standing at the edge and holding out her leaf, which, you know, appeases the planet god thing. So like, like all of those things are kind of like, you don't get this sense of like fear, but it's more like the, you know, classic mythical hero sort yeah. of. Yeah. This is, I mean, and maybe it's a function of it being on our world in a submarine in, you know, mm. a sort of famous historical time when there's a lot of tension. Uh, yeah. You know, that it does sort of quite literally bring it home for her and mm-hmm. make her think like, oh, wow, these are, there are actual, you know, consequences that could happen here. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, too, um, you know, it kind of reminds me of how Moffat and Davies were always very intentional about only use, you know, guns when you really mean them. Like, they're kind of happy to kind of have people be, like, you know, dissolved by lasers, but, like, it's very rare that you see, like, an actual, like, gunshot, you know, wound and everything. So they are very selective in how they kind of do the violence, Mm. you know. So... The idea, like, you know, you have kind of people, you know, people die by the truckload in Doctor Who, but it's very rare that you get, like, what you get here, which is, and again, you don't see it, it's not gruesome, but you get this, you know, notion of this bloody sort of heap, you know, like, just the hand sticking, almost like, I just had a flashback that it reminds me of like when they find the remains of the victim in Jaws, Mm. you know, and it, and I almost even wonder if that's a reference, like where you don't see, you know, what, you know, the remains look like, but you just see the hand sticking up and you know, it's nasty, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that she's been sort of totally torn apart. And that's kind of the sense I get here, you know, so like you said, like, it's more real and less mythic. Like, yes, in the earlier episodes, people could have died, but that's different than seeing the actual physical torn apart sort of corpse, I guess. Right. Um, and like, that's kind of what she says is like, it's the seeing of the body that makes it real to her of what, you know, there's, there's death in the abstract and then there's, death in the concrete yeah. and what that yeah like. well like even with the um like yeah the episode with like the whole cloud thing like you know we do get that sort of line of explanation of like some people's bodies weren't capable of you know having their right. souls put back in or whatever what consciousness consciousnesses uh-huh. or whatever we call them um so like you kind of know that like yeah those people died but one we don't know like how many like how many was that like five people was it 500 like we don't have an idea of the scale and also like it's yeah sort of nebulous it's like it's like what you're saying like okay it's a ship in the distance being disintegrated it's not like Mm. you don't 
see it, you don't have whatever. But like, yeah, like here, it's definitely that. It's that up close and personal. It's like one of the one of the worst um, death scenes that I've seen is um, is a scene in Saving Private Ryan, which of course has tons of death in it. Um, sure. But that scene where uh, I think it's Saving Private Ryan. Now am I getting my movies mixed up? My war movies. Where it's the guy up in the um, like the tower, and it's like the very slow. Knife. Yeah, Adam Goldberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he's fighting the yeah, 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 and he gets it like, yeah, it's yeah. Awful. That's like because it's slow, so slow, it's so slow. and yeah. close up, and you know, like silent, like you know, like so. It's that kind of. I mean, obviously, this isn't that gruesome and that graphic or whatever, but um, right. that same sort of feel and. You know, maybe appropriate that they are both sort of like military movies, you know, like mm-hmm. or visual one movie, one's yeah. TV. But you know what I mean? Like that that they're both sort of kind of in that same genre. So, um, yeah, no. I, right. Whereas the last episode was definitely that mythic fairy tale feel, you know, mm-hmm. um, which I think appropriately, like death is more of an abstract, like in a in a in the fantasy mode, you're talking about the idea of death, whereas here it's maybe more about the the concrete and the physical and the reality of it. Yeah. Um, and I guess I mean the other big thing to me too about that scene with Clara is like yes, the realization of um, of kind of what it means and uh the potential consequences of the traveling and everything but also her um those little moments both to the doctor and to the professor and to herself of her kind of wanting validation for mm-hmm. how was i how did i do you know like as soon as mm-hmm. the doctor grabs her she's asking was that okay did i do okay and he's like okay it wasn't a test and like now is not the time to kind of review your performance. And she's like, I know, but like, I want to know anyway. And then she can't stop herself later on from going, you know, like it, it, it went okay. Actually, you know, it didn't go okay at all, but it's not cause I did anything wrong. It's just because that's what happened. Right. It's not like it was my fault. So you get this sort of, you know, um, like, I guess that's another personality thing about Clara is this like, maybe kind of detail-oriented focus on, you know, like we see the other companions learning and growing and become more doctorish and everything, but I don't know that we see any of them kind of beat themselves up the way that, like they have moments of failure, but here she is kind of, okay, I volunteered to do something and I finished it and now I want to know exactly how I did and if I did anything wrong and if it was the right way to do it and everything. So you get her kind of, self you know reflection that way i guess yeah Yeah. um yeah no definitely that that goes right along the the whole how did i do was i okay like and the doctor Mm -hmm. like this wasn't a test like again that goes right along with the like yeah this is real stuff happening it's not Mm -hmm. virtual reality it's not 
I die yeah. here and wake up somewhere else. Although with Clara, that could be a possibility. Who knows? Like, we sure. still don't know what is actually going on with her. But, like, at least, you know, for all intents and purposes, like, we don't think that's the case here. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no, that's that's definitely all part of it. And then there's also, so, like, there's the other, you know, given that we haven't seen her in the past, at least this iteration of Clara in the past, um it also affords that sort of other classic opportunity of finding out that, you know, the future is not as fixed as we might think it mm-hmm. is um, or yeah. want to believe it is. So, you know, the world didn't end in 1983, did it? You know, or I wouldn't I wouldn't be here. And doctors like, yeah. well, actually, you know, things can change. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that that, you know, goes right along with the. um the language thing. Oh, I'm speaking Russian. How come I'm speaking Russian? Like, you know, and, and those sorts of classic companion moments of just learning. I mean, to us, the mythology, but you know, to them, like the reality Mm -hmm. of the world that they live in, um, and the universe and whatever you want to call the time dimension of that, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. um, aspect of how things work. Uh, so, you know, again, it's, like, that also is scary because that's, like, another way you can, like, it's not just, like, I can die because I get blown up by a nuclear device right here. There's mm-hmm. also the idea of, like, something I do could erase my person in the future, which right. would erase me now <laughs> because I would never right. have been born. Right, which is kind of another way of getting blown up. Right, by, like, it's not, you know, you know? Right? And, <laughs> yeah. but also, like because it's unpredictable and you don't know what you, I mean, and we've seen this time and again in, in different Dr. Who stories, but like, you know, just the idea of like, you don't know that which choice it is that is quote the right one. And the one, the crucial uh, one, the the right one being the one that keeps me from not being here right now. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes that choice is very difficult to make in this case. I mean, it, seems like it all worked out but like there are you know there are times right. where like either choice you make it could go either way like you don't really actually yeah. know what's happening so um just yeah. that again that sort of reality of the the actual implications of the traveling and the mm-hmm. not quite getting to the places where you think you're going and how that can affect yeah you and the people with you and all of that. Yeah. Um, and I think, I guess, just to kind of wrap up with her and, and the episode, I guess, then you get that kind of final concluding moment of um, her big kind of hug for the doctor, and then she goes, so that's what we do. Um, you know, or she says, like, so we save the world, so that's what we do. Um and I think like you kind of have a little progression here in these first if the if these first three episodes are the kind of you know introduction of her to the world, you know that's the kind of culmination of her realizing this is what this is what it is and this is what we do that because we talked about him coming to her with more knowledge than she mm-hmm. has. So here's just this wacky alien who knocks on the door and wants to know her and protect her and take her on adventures and she doesn't know anything about him or why he knows her or why he cares 
Um, you know, and he kind of conceals certain information about that. Sure. So you can kind of, so I think she's had a more standoffish start than some of the other ones, you know. Um, and even like, you know, we still, I think it's kind of clear by now that she's not, even in, in the, she's the full-time companion in the sense that she's the one we get every week, but she's not a full-time resident in the TARDIS, I guess, that she's still, um, you know, had told him, come back next Wednesday. And then, um, you, if it's not clear yet, you definitely get the sense as the season goes on that she's not moved in, that, that he's coming back on a regular basis to pick her up for these adventures. Gotcha. So you have still this, this slight kind of holding at arm's length of mm. not totally embracing the adventures. Um, and I think in the last episode, you get a sense of, you know, her wanting, there's that moment where he's going to face down the planet on his own and she decides she wants to help and everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, here you finally get, you know, the hug, you know, like, like the first kind of real show of affection that I think, you know, besides like, the kiss. Well, but again, uh, I'm talking about modern day. Sure. That was a different Clara. That was That's a different Clara. So get hard to keep track of. <laughs> it is a little hard to keep track of. Um, but you're right. No, it was. Yes, I'm talking about. I'm talking. I just mean strictly. Um, you know, mm -hmm. and even with her speaking of, you know, the kiss. Even though she kind of is, Oswin is definitely the more openly flirtatious one, and then you get Victoria and Clara, you know, continuing that and and kissing him too, in um, with modern day Clara when she starts and he's and he says, you know, come inside the box and she you know, says, oh, it's a snog box, is it? That's what you do is, you know, you bring, you know, your your booth around and you get, you know, girls to come in. And he's sort of, oh, Clara, like he's so sort mm -hmm. of scandalized that she would ever have this idea. So the modern version of her has been a little bit more skeptical of, I guess, what he might have in mind. And I guess this is maybe the first not that it's romantic necessarily, but like her kind of actually literally embracing him and kind of realizing, oh, you save the world. That's what we do. And that's kind of mm -hmm. a good thing. She seems sort of pleased about that. Um, so, you know, again, just kind of using these first couple episodes as a introduction both to her character and introducing her to the doctor into the, the world of the show and everything. Yeah. Yep. Um, so there we go. Cool. I think that's everything I have. So unless you have anything else, we can move on to the finale of season one of angel. Yeah, I guess. Um, no, I guess that's it at this point. <laughs> I, I felt like there was something else I was going to say, but I don't remember what it was, okay. so it's fine. If I think of it, All right. we'll mention it well, next week or something. If you think of it, let me know. Okay. On that note, <laughs> um, well, we could kind of start all over the place, because this is kind of the finale that tries to sort of 
I don't mean tries to like it doesn't su doesn't succeed, but it does sort of reference and pack in like most of the major characters and kind of ideas and everything for the season. So even just kind of figuring out where to start was a little bit overwhelming uh, when I was thinking about it. But I think it is like a big character episode too for the main characters. So sure. I want to definitely give them uh, enough time and attention. Mm -hmm. So let's start with Angel. Um, and I know, I guess we might as well just start with the prophecy since that's sort of the central idea. Um, you know, and we get these kind of bookends of Wesley trying to translate the prophecy, um, which is in Magyar, which I think is hilarious, especially since he pronounces it Magyar. <laughs> yeah, well. And as as a Hungarian, that that tickles my <clears throat> but Right, um, right. Anyway, I don't think Shenshu is a real word, by the way. No, um, I don't. But... <laughs> I don't think it's intended to be. But yeah, it's no. Um, I did want to bring up. So I mean, obviously, Tu Shanshu in L.A. is the title episode. So this is actually a reference to a movie. Talk uh, an, another. This is another movie I haven't seen. A, a mid eighties movie that I actually I'm haven't. Stri I'm striking out on the mid eighties movies. This um, week. That I have not seen either, and it's. Um, it's a it's the title of the movie is to live and die in LA. And of course the sort of pun, I guess you want to call it is that Shan Shu translates to both to live, to live and, and to die. die. Yeah. So, um, I don't actually even know what the movie's about. I think it's like a cop movie or something. Like I don't, mm. I've never seen it either. Um, but it's just, right. I guess notable that this, this is sort of a reference to that. I don't know if thematically it even has anything to do um, with sure. it, but um, just that idea well, that you know it's it's the living and the dying together. That there's mm. that there's a almost dualistic um, sort mm -hmm. of idea to it. That um, yeah, that's brought out and and just yeah, that kind of cyclical idea of yeah. of you know the. I guess it's kind of a yin and yang right. you know, notion of these things are dependent on each other. And, um, and, and not that they are necessarily the same thing, but that by definition, they can't exist without yeah. you know, each other, at least not as we know it anyway, in, in the mortal human world, because the other kind of twist too, is that to live in, Wesley kind of concludes at the end that to live and die translates to human, you know. So it's not he will die before, you know, he'll die at the end. And it's not even that he'll live and then he'll die at the end. It's that he'll live and die, which is he'll become human. That that's... Now, again, this is Wesley's interpretation and translation. So, right. you know, but his conclusion is that the culmination of all of the story, I guess, of Angel will be, you know, like Pinocchio, he'll become a real boy. Yeah. Um, well, and that's right. So like the, the, that he'll live until he dies. Well, he's not alive now, technically. Right. Like it's right. So that's, that's the, the promise is that he will become 
alive he again. Live before he dies, and then, yeah. And then die, you know, like a normal person, not be dusted mm-hmm. or, you know, taken care right. of. Right. Um, that way. And yeah, I mean, right, it is Wesley's translation, but I think, like, I think the idea here is that we're supposed to kind of come away with, like, that he does kind of crack it at the end. Like, it that it's not yeah. like, I don't think we can say, like, oh, like, I don't think we're meant to think that, like, next season we're going to come up with, oh, you know what? I was wrong when I said that. It's actually this thing. No. Um, no. It, 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 I agree. Definitely, I think, like, in terms of, like, the translation of the text, I think I got the same sense, yeah. too, that we're not going to have a fake out, that this is the real understanding. If there's any catch to that, I think it's this notion of what Angel says to Lindsay right before he cuts his hand off of don't believe everything you're foretold and that prophecies can be tricky things. And so that's the only qualifying. It's not that what Wesley translates isn't true. It's that it may not be the whole truth. It may not be quite what you think it, you know, not necessarily as, as a trick or anything, but you know, that there could be, nuance that is yet to be sort of unearthed from it right Um, yeah and i think yeah and that's definitely true i mean that was true also in buffy you know like any any time a prophecy came up like buffy i thought you were supposed to die well i did die and here i am like you know yeah yeah it's that it's that um, old Macbeth idea of you know Right. It doesn't quite mean what what you think it means, um, right? You know, or or you know, the Tolkien. Well, I am no man. You know, like yeah, I'm no man. <laughs> um, yeah, and and with an assist from a hobbit, and he is not a man either. So, um, right. so yeah. the The other thing too in the title that I think thematically is interesting is the inclusion of in L.A. and you know that I think that kind of confirms what we've kind of brought up uh, in a lot of episodes, which is the, like the significance of the setting in LA, Mm. Um, both for kind of like the noir reasons, um, but also the repeated idea of that. This is where the people go who are trying to chase some sort of dream, often an unattainable dream and that the ones who, you know, other than the very few who do make it, everyone else kind of ends up in, like, the, the reject pile, sort of at the, the you know, in, in the sort of gutter of society. So whether it's, like, the failed actors or, you mm. know, um, the people who've, you know, Angel and Cordy and Wesley are all sort of shunned from their particular groups that they belong to, right. you know, or it's or it's... Gun and his kids who are mm. homeless and don't have, you know, stable homes that are taking care of them. You know, you end up with all the kind of, you know, the 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 few who are sort of in power at the very top, who we kind of epitomize as the glamorous L.A. culture, right. and then everybody else. Right. Um, so... You know, the, I think it's interesting that the title isn't just like about living and dying, but also specifically in L.A. and how like that place sort of shapes the story of what makes Angel. One of the things that I think makes Angel different from Buffy is 
that location and kind of what that means to the characters and everything. Yeah. Um, I also want to point out in the prophecy, as Wesley is explaining it, and I don't want to say too much, but okay. I do want to point out the prophecy does not name Angel. We've gotten right. prophecies before that have said Angelus in them. Mm. This says the, the vampire, vampire with the soul, soul once right. fulfilling their destiny will shant you. Mm. And again, this is in Wesley's words. So, yeah. We also have the return of Darla at the end, which we can mm. get to late. Like, I don't want to start talking, but like, yeah, she was a vampire. And now she's mm -hmm. back. We don't know her nature at this point. Is she yeah. a vampire? Is she not a vampire? If not, what is she? Mm -hmm. Like, what, you know, yeah. what is this that has come back? So, mm. um, and also, if Angel got his soul somehow, is it possible for other vampires to get souls? And yeah, what does a soul definitely. mean? I mean, even... And I'm not trying to suggest anything here because Spike is in Buffy and Angel's here. But, like, you know, we've talked about how, like, the chip in Spike's head kind of has mm -hmm. a similar effect in some ways as mm -hmm. a soul. So, like, how does that affect, you know, is is there a technological sort of device yeah. that could be similar to a soul in that way? Or is there something, you know, or is there some other magical way that's not a gypsy curse to get a soul? Like, there's... Yeah. I mean, again, we're only in season one of Angel, so I don't want to, like, take that too far down too many roads. Sure. But, like, this is all along the lines of how do you interpret the prophecy? Mm. And, yeah, like, don't believe everything you're foretold. Like, there's mm. definitely a sense here. But I think, I think functionally, from, like, a TV show perspective, um, like, I think, I think we needed a a season, a full season to have Angel sort of working through and to have us work through with him. Like, what is the show going to be? Mm -hmm. And I think this is the fact that now they give him this hope, whether it's false or not, like it may, it may, mm -hmm. I mean, it may be that the prophecy ends up being exactly what Angel thinks it's going to be. And everything's on Kidori at the end too. So like, regardless of what it ends up actually being at this point in time, you know, this becomes Angel's motivation. So, like, he, mm -hmm. you know, we did sort of spend a lot of time of him rooting and, you know, half pining for Buffy and being tempted to, mm -hmm. you know, keep the ring and, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, and, and to, you know, just all the different things that kind of go along with that. But then also, like, sort of the painful stuff of, when Buffy comes and he sends her back away and, you know, protects faith and all that kind of stuff. Like there, there's yeah. all these things that sort of happen over this season to kind of get Buffy out of the way. And it's like, this is the last, it's like, you know, what's the best way to get over a relationship? Well, it's to find a new relationship. Well, this is mm -hmm. kind of his new relationship, right? It's like, I'm, I'm finding myself and, and it's, you know, the finding myself is now I have something that's not Buffy. That's not, what I left behind to root for it's to become human, you know, right. and it's, it's right. to win through these various uprisings and apocalypses and whatever else might be going on. This is the thing now that 
and yeah. and I mean, I think they kind of make that pretty clear in this episode. I don't know that I'm saying anything sure. particularly enlightening here, but like with the whole, <laughs> I I love the scene where like you know. Cordy is trying to offer Angel things and he keeps rejecting them and she's like yeah. looking at Wesley helplessly like he doesn't want anything and like you know yeah. it's all going to go bad but um, but yeah like that that idea of that he doesn't have a desire or a passion and this now yeah. like you, you kind of see that at the end like he kind of half smiles and is like this is the thing that mm. he will that he will now yes. follow through with and, and pursue. Um, yeah. Having some sort of, you know, hope implies like something to hope for something to work towards right. something that's not just, you know, the endless eternity of every day, which is his yeah. reality, you know, up until this point, you know, that, yeah, Cordy kind of does define, humanity you know as wanting desiring right you know well cordy and wesley kind of agree that that's part of what makes them human is um you know and maybe part of that again is the mortality factor of it's about living and dying mm -hmm. that it's not eternity because if you have eternity you don't you know you don't want for anything you know yeah. you can't you have all the time in the world you don't have a sense of running out of time or this need to attain something that you long for. Right. Um, you, you know, that there's something about the, the mortality and your own limitation that makes you work towards the things that you want. Yeah. Well, and it's, it also shifts. So like there's the Buffy thing and I think that's all still true, but there's also the shift from, you know, I'm doing this to atone for my past sins because like, that's fine. It's, you know, okay, it might be good and even noble to, like, acknowledge that you did bad things in the past and to atone for them. Mm -hmm. But if that's all you have to live for, then it's just constantly reminding you of how bad you used to be. Yeah. And now this is like, like, he's still helping people. He's still doing the things that he was doing. And he's still atoning in that way. But now it's like, he's also doing it for himself in a way like the atonement mm -hmm. factor might've kind of been himself like to help assuage guilt a little bit. But even that, like, mm -hmm. again, by assuaging your guilt, you're reminding yourself of your guilt, <laughs> you know, like it's, yeah. it's that idea of like, now there's something beyond to work toward that's actually constructive and not just reparative. If that's even a right. word. Um, it, it, in a weird Maybe this, I don't want to take this analogy too far, but it's almost like we've gone from like a pagan to a Christian sort of worldview here of like, you know, the, the heroes are going to fight for the gods because it's the right thing to do, you know, and the gods are going to fight against the evil, but they're going to lose no matter what. It's all going to end in disaster and they have just sort of, there's nobility in the fact that they're going to keep fighting even though they know that it's sort of hopeless in the end. Um, whereas now we've shifted into this, yes, it is the right thing to do. And yes, it's not necessarily selfish to, to fight evil and to help people, but also there is, there is possibility for actual 
like redemption, like the actual, or, yeah. the actual achievement of redemption or atonement. That there could be something to help yourself as well as to help other people. And like, I'm hesitant to say reward because that's true. I don't, I don't want to imply that that now that becomes the only motivation that, and that it's a totally. I don't think it's either in, you know in a religious or in the in the context of this series i don't think it's just about saving yourself mm -hmm. but there is that that hope of a happy ending that there could be a purpose to it more than just the nobility of doing it because it's noble yeah um, well and i so i a couple things like one i think yeah i i don't think that like Angel was certainly helping people and you know and doing he the atonement. That. Yeah. And he he's proved yeah. that like he's proven like, that. And it's nice that we get a whole season, I, like you said. I think that, that that shows that. Like like I don't think we're meant to look at Angel early in this episode as like about to off himself. That seems to be like what Cordy thinks might happen. But mm -hmm. I don't think we right. I don't think Angel like I think more more to Angel's character, it would be that he would continue stoically on, but perhaps just continue withdrawing and withdrawing and withdrawing. And like, at some point mm -hmm. would, you know, possibly lose Cordy and Wesley as friends and like, you know, like other things might happen, but I think he would just right. keep going, yeah. you know, at least for a very long time until, yeah. I mean, maybe someone kills him or something, but I don't think we're right. This isn't like depression that leads to like him staking himself or anything. Like, no, no, and I I don't think so either. Um, but I um, think I think the the reality of of the giving of that opportunity for hope again, you know, in in something beyond just what he is doing now, like it helps him even in, even more so to fulfill that sort of self-appointed mission of atonement and you know by you know by just recognizing that you know, again, what what do we mean when we say human? Well, we mean vampires. You know, like it's mm. you know it's it's this idea that like he, you know, he is in some ways like everyone else because he has a soul, and it's more than just like demonic or animal instinct. Mm -hmm. It's you know he needs something positive to work towards, not just you know again that constant reminder of you know trying to fix things that he can't control anymore because they're in the right. past. So it's, it's, it's again, that shift of looking forward rather than looking backward. Um, yeah. And I, and I think you're right that his, his kind of stoicism is shown when, you know, Wesley first kind of um, mentions that he could die and Angel is kind of just sort of stoic is the best word. Like he's not, depressed by that fact but he's not um like it doesn't really he seems just sort of like he had kind of expected that not in the sense of he is going to do anything you know not in the sense that he's ready for it to be over but in the sense of i think that would be the plan would be to just continue to fight the good fight until you know either forever or until the inevitable happens and somebody you know, takes him down. Mm. And, 
there's nothing he doesn't show much of a reaction either way about that not really depression or kind of relief it's just sort of the reality that he had sort of expected i think yeah um so yeah and then it's not a big celebration at the end he's not allowing himself to become too uh you know he don't break out the champagne until it's happened but there is the possibility um yeah i had another point and now i forget <laughs> it darn it it was just in my head and it flew right out um well always we can we can keep talking um so yeah, just trying to think of what else about Angel that we well we wanted to talk about sort of the other folks in Angel's life um, mm -hmm. that you know we get in this episode anyway, um, and we can just run through them real quickly. So there we get Kate Gunn and Nabbit and mm -hmm. um, David Nabbit that is, and so yes, um, Kate specifically. I mean, I don't know that yeah. much has changed like she seems to be going down her own sort of broody, uh, yeah. you know, rabbit hole. Well, I, I wasn't expecting that to be left unresolved at the end of the season. Like sure. I, I've been kind of expecting, to be honest, I would have expected like a reconciliation. Mm. Um, but maybe if not that, at least some sort of, maybe a turn for the worse, maybe a, a sort of, like definitive break or some sort of you know betrayal or whatever but you know it so that was kind of unexpected and interesting that they kind of just left it uh where it's been like you said like just kind of uh, the, the relationship deteriorating for for the worse and her not still not really if if what Angel says to her has any effect in helping her understand where he's coming from, we don't see it. You know, maybe when, maybe in season two, she'll come back and say, okay, you know, maybe I blamed you for things that weren't your fault. Maybe I didn't try hard enough to understand or whatever. But we don't get any real sense of that in this episode, I don't think. Mm. Uh, it sort of leaves her where she's been, you know, which is sort of still mistrusting him. And, you know, so even when he's showing up at the scenes of the crime, already having taken care of it, you know, she's kind of ready to pick a fight about ridding the city of his kind and all the evil that he's doing and everything. Um, and we get Angel kind of being provoked enough to finally kind of stand up for himself a bit and say, you know, okay, you don't actually know exactly what's going on and you've been assigning a lot of blame to me for things that I didn't do. Right. So. Yeah. 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 Kate is definitely going down her own spiral in this. Okay. In this case. And yeah, it is. I mean... A lot happens in this episode, so like mm. the fact that they don't spend more time on Kate, like I agree, sure. like maybe there could have been a little more time 
for that, but also like, like you get the sense that it's it's not just like, like it's affecting her career too, right? I mean, we already saw previously yeah. that she was sort of getting a reputation. Now it's like they're pretty much openly mocking her. You know, she's a joke. Um, yeah. Because like <laughs> like before it was more like oh you know quirky Kate like. Right. You're the you're the Mulder, you're the Scully, you're the Scully right? The, Wasn't she the chick? Yeah. yeah, blah blah. Or whichever yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so like the um but like yeah, like there it was just kind of like confusion and bemusement. Like now it's like open mockery of yeah. you know, oh here's the weirdo again. Um yeah. and like But like it's it's interesting because like even if she thinks angel is dangerous like she's not really doing it like she knows how to kill vampires like mm-hmm. but she's not doing anything to try to stop him either right. so like you do get a sense that there's a part of her that knows that she's just angry i mean and i mean yeah. her father was killed like i mean there's, it's not like she doesn't have a reason to be angry but that like sure. her anger is misplaced and like mm. that seems to be kind of the trigger that angel that sets angel off to say look like you said you know you're blaming me for a lot of stuff that isn't my fault so like i'm just gonna go do what i need to do and you can deal with it however you feel is best you know um yeah so so there does seem like even you know the fact of her sort of inaction like mm-hmm because what does she really do, like, in any of these last couple... Like, she's just kind of going around looking at stuff. She's right. not actually being a detective or being a cop in any, like, meaningful sense of the term. I mean, we she could be in scenes, you know, in at times when we're not seeing her. Like, I mean, I suppose that's possible. But, like, this the sense is that, like, some of the reason these people are ridiculing her is because she just shows up these weird scenes but doesn't ever right. really do anything or doesn't do right. anything that's noticeable anyway. Right. And, and, you know, you could speculate about what's the, the, like, it seems like you said that she's only singling out these cases, which have kind of weird supernatural, like that she sort of decided to, to focus on those rather than on, you know, regular, you know, crime or whatever. And then, yeah, she doesn't really show up and kind of do anything to stake any vampires or vanquish any evil. She she kind of seems like she shows up expecting Angel to be there and then so she can, like, give him a talking to. Like, this is the plan now is to just, like, kind of hound Angel yeah. and and give him a hard time, you know? Um, yeah, it's almost it's almost that, like old woman sitting on the porch looking at like the kids, you know, walking by, like, I know you're up to something. I just can't prove it, you know, like I can't prove it, but like I can keep following you around and I, and she'll keep finding him. It's just that she doesn't find him in any like compromising situations. Like he's kind of doing what he always does and should be doing. Um, yeah. So, and yeah. And to be clear, I didn't, um, I didn't necessarily, by expecting more, I didn't necessarily think that there should have been more. I was just sort of surprised. And actually, I think it's a little more interesting that it, it might have been a bit more uh, predictable for them to have like a big reconciliation. Yeah. So I'm kind of intrigued by the fact that they don't. So 
well, kind of leaves it in an interesting place. Stay intrigued. I will say we actually don't see Kate again for a while. So, like, okay. um, yeah, it's, it, I mean, right. her story does pick at, back up and everything, but, like, mm-hmm. not right away. Not right so, away. Okay. Yeah, but it. Fair enough. I mean, you're right. Like, it's definitely not resolved, and she's still angry, and, you know, she's mm-hmm. still convinced to some degree anyway that angel's at fault somehow we just don't know to what extent that is or or how that will affect things down the road yeah um uh, so the other the other sort of um one we definitely want to talk about is gun um mm-hmm. and here so once again like you know going back to the first episode where we saw gun you know at the end you know angel's like well i might need help you know like you know that sort of twist on you know he's not trying to help gun he's actually trying to forge connection so that gun will help him and um so here we again we have angel coming to him to help um not this time with violence per se but for protection um yeah which could potentially include violence but like not primarily it's not an, an offensive uh you know move it's a defensive one so um and yeah i don't know that there's a ton to say about that but yeah just that gun is willing to do it and it's you know this isn't like you know again this isn't like gun's gonna he's not part of angel investigations or anything but he is this sort of close ally that um you know starting to see that we're able to rely on and and that kind of thing yeah that he's he's gone to him consistent i mean it's only been three episodes but like you get the sense of he's becoming like this this regular person that angel can rely on um and and still eager to help you know um you know and and partly because like there's kind of he gets a kick out of it and he does get the thrill of you know the adventure and everything but you know, Angel kind of says, like, these people are very important. And Gunn says, you know, I, I'm getting that. And you get the sense that he understands that, that that's mm-hmm. how he feels about the people under his protection. Yeah. So there's very, a kind of understanding. Very there. much as similar to, you know, Mal, Ren, Malcolm Reynolds yeah. in Firefly. Of, like, you know, yep. you're part of my crew. and This is my people, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that kind of, that same idea. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, just, I mean, again, not you know, not a huge amount of time or anything, but just like, you know, again, that sense of this is, this is someone we're going to be seeing more of and relying more on and, and that kind of thing. And, um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, and then the third one, David Nabbit, uh, who wants to be that Mm. in that position that gun is in, but is awkward and doesn't quite, understand what's going on and isn't quite able to get past his own awkwardness yeah he hasn't he hasn't quite mastered the the aloof coolness of gun that he sort of invites himself over doesn't really wants it too much doesn't wants it too much doesn't really have any thing to contribute that we can see other than his money um and but like doesn't even really have a sense of what goes on really you know right. that doesn't have a real understanding of what they do um you know 
he kind of comes in his dungeon master cape and you do get the idea that for him it's role play mm-hmm. like it would be yeah. about playing a game it's not real life and death stakes like gun understands stakes. it is stakes um it's all about stakes yeah. so um again well and it's interesting that you know we we met those characters in the same episode and you kind of had the the out of touch you know kind of sheltered rich guy up there and then the like you know a street kid who's had way too much reality you know and his mm-hmm. You know, however, however old he is, you know he's lived more than most other people, um, and so you know, thinking again, even though even though David Nabbit is an outcast in his own way, you still get that sense of Gunn is more a fit with Angel and his group as kind of at the fringes of society. That you know that these are the people that are coming together and that I I feel bad sort of shortchanging David but it seems like he does not really fit in with the crowd or have much that he can offer you, Angel you, in the way of assistance. He's even a misfit you know in, even among, in, the, among misfits. the misfits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and it's just funny how like he kind of scares the crap out of them by like you know right. sneaking in and then kind of awkwardly waits around to be sort of invited. And then when he doesn't, he just sort of lamely wanders off. Right. Like, all right. Well, yeah. all right. See ya. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yep. So. I, I do love that moment, though, of like, where he's like all juiced up, right? Like, this is real. Like, a demon could walk through the door anytime. And yeah. Nope. No demon. It does. Like, it, it no. It's just, no, it's just a regular mundane. Uh, yeah. You know, then. of course, a demon does walk through the door later in the episode, but um, we'll get to Voca yeah. in a few. Uh, so yeah, no, I mean, yeah, you do. I, you know, you kind of feel bad for him, but at the same time, it is that like awkward people never quite know when they're being awkward, you know. And it's like, right. I mean, he does That's kind of get the kind clue of eventually, makes... but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Things get too awkward even for him. Um, but, okay, so those are all the people who are sort of almost or would be allies, but, like, I think the focus, you know, we, we definitely want to give some time to Cordy and Wesley, who are, you know, the actual, um, you know, allies in this case, and interesting kind of parallel with Buffy, where you have uh, you know, how do we make Buffy vulnerable, you know, separate her from her friends. Yeah. So you have Spike running around and, and not attacking them, but kind of suggesting things that get them to fight amongst themselves and everything. And here, that's kind of the strategy is, you know, how do we get at Angel so that we can get this scroll back and, you know, Foka the demon says, I'll take care of it. And what he does is to, you know, not go after Angel, but to go after his friends. So, you know, separate him from the powers that be. And he does that, you know, kind of, well, he takes care of the oracles and via Cordy, you know, because he kind of, mm. not, it's kind of a 
two for one, not only does he, you know, sort of attack Cordy so that, you know, she's sort of incapacitated, but also you've, you've now severed the connection to whoever it is that sends the visions in the first place. So that's another level of like spiritual guidance that he doesn't have. Right. Um, and same thing with Wesley, like he, you know, tries to kill Wesley. So you're not only losing Wesley's kind of support and advice, but you're also now, he can't be translating the scroll and doing all the kind of research work that he does either. Um, so that's kind of interesting to have those two stories in parallel that for both Buffy and Angel, you know, a large part of what makes them the hero is is this effective sort of support system that they have around them and that a good way to get at them is to go after those friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, and, and again, that idea of this is, um, you know, like when Angel bursts into the hospital there, right? It's like, you know, are, are you family? And he's just like, yes. Like, there's no hesitation, like, anymore of... Like, yeah, you know, this is, and then again, you know, and the parallel with Wesley of, you know, I mean, Angel, a vampire is running into a burning building. <laughs> like fire yeah. is one of the few things that will actually kill him. And, you know, yeah. he's risking his life, his non-life to go in and, you know, yeah. save him. Um, fortunately, he doesn't have to breathe. So that's, you know, good, but uh you know still the fire thing uh but yeah like just that idea that like he you know that's what enrages him and and gets him to finally sort of make that offensive move against wolfram and hart and voca and you know really yeah. go after them um and and it's you know even though like cordy was prompting him earlier to go see the oracles you know again it's that those are the things that prompt him to go to the oracles. Of course, it's too late. Had he gone earlier, he might have been mm -hmm. able to save him, but you know, or something. Sure. You know, who knows? But might have been able to, at least, something might have happened. And so, like, it's this idea of like it's, you know, simply listening to sort of the people who you care about isn't enough. Like, but when they get hurt, like that becomes like the unstoppable thing. And now he's doing the stuff that he should have gone, you know, been doing all along. So just that, yeah. you know, just that idea that this is, yeah, this is what sort of gets him. It's, you know, the Shan's shoe stuff. Yeah. Like might be his long-term motivation that we find at the end, but at least in the short term, he, you know, his motivation is not just saving other people, but keeping his friends yeah. safe and that kind of thing. So. Yeah, and you get the callback at, at the end of um, when Cordy is hands him the pint of blood and says, don't be embarrassed, we're family. Um, so her kind of echoing. Um, and I like the way um, they kind of, again, with, with, with spending the first season um, kind of, with the characters, I think similar to Angel, trying to trying to find their way in the new world that they're in and the new show that they're in, and now kind of opening up to 
the possibility of a new level of motivation, you get something similar with Cordy. Um, mm -hmm. You know, with, you know, not having a complete total makeover of personality, but definitely opening up to a new understanding of, yeah. you know, and, and a new level of motivation that, you know, like, yeah, she wanted to, I think in the specifics, Cordy wanted to help people. If she saw somebody who was in trouble, she would say, yes, obviously, you know, she, it's not like she didn't want to help people, but now having had this exposure to the kind of all of the, the people who need help that she's had a taste of their pain and suffering, mm -hmm. she now has this bigger picture perspective of they that's now the thing that she's working towards is not just about herself and making rent and making you know uh, getting her acting jobs and you know wanting to sort of survive on her own but having this now kind of bigger altruistic motivation to go out there and help as many people as she can yeah it's kind of like the virtual reality version of like what Buffy got in earshot, you know, with like the voices, sure. you know, of yeah. hearing everyone's pain and whatever, like, but this is like the feeling, you know, like the, mm. I, you know, what do you call it? Like the immersive, like, you know, yeah. uh, sensory, you know, feel of all that, like constantly barraging her. And like, yeah, I mean, you know, with Cordy, who knows? Like, maybe by the beginning of season two, she'll have forgotten, you know, some of the, like stuff sure. like that. But I do think you're right. Like this definitely seems like a turning point. And, and like, even at the end, you kind of do see her, you know, giving her same sort of snappy, you know, comebacks yeah. or whatever. But I do think you're right. Like this is definitely something we're supposed to see as Cordy expanding beyond herself. Like, more than just temporarily and more than just like, yeah. you know, like even, even in helping other people, it also was up kind of for the paycheck, you know what I mean? And it also sure. was kind of because she didn't have a choice because Doyle gave her the visions and like, mm. so what else is she going to do? Like, you know what I mean? Like there's this, this sense that even, even when she was helping before, like it was not, a hundred percent, you know, because she just wanted to help people. But like now, you know, when she has that, you know, finally, you know, things stop and she, you know, she still has like the tears and the, you know, terrible looking face from the experience. Yeah. Like just the idea that she's like, we need to help them. Like all this pain yeah. and all this, whatever, um, you know, she could have said any number of things after that, but what she says is we need to help them. And so this is her, you know, this is her, I mean, I guess if we're going along with like your sort of conversion experience, you know, what you mentioned before, like this is, this is kind of it for her. Like it almost is a spiritual experience in a way of, you know, realizing that there's just so much more pain and suffering out there and that like her own kind of pales in comparison to it all um well and there's this kind of notion that the the suffering can kind of 
a benefit of that can be the, you know, learning to empathize with other people. And I think already we've seen that being in a less privileged circumstance in, in this season has made Cordy soften even a little bit from where she was in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, and now like, this is even further, like, you know, this is a lot more than just, you know, some money troubles. This is like true suffering that she's now had a taste of. And, you know, but at the same time, I don't think we would want her to lose all the things that make her courty either, you know, and I, you know, you, it's not like she's now this, this saint, like you still have, um, you know, a little bit of the snark and the personality, which is what is likable about Mm -hmm. her too. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And not, and like, and not that you want her to have to go through the level of pain and suffering she goes through in experiencing everyone's pain and suffering. But like, right. That doesn't mean that good doesn't come out of that pain and suffering. Well, exactly. Yeah. 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 No, no. And that's not, that's exactly what I mean is there's a, a unintended benefit to it that it's um that's not the only way to to be that's not the only or even the best way to learn empathy but it can be an effective one and at least if there is a silver lining to going through something really difficult it can be that it gives you a greater understanding for people who also have those difficulties Um, yeah it's that i mean that's the the Tolkien right with like the whole you know Morgoth's song being discordant and whatever but then like still having good be able to come out of that kind of thing right right it doesn't make it good in itself but you know good can come out of even the evil so yeah so I think they've also kind of opened up that as like a a new level of motivation for Cordy than, than we've had for her before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah. Where, you know, I think with Cordy, um, and, and kind of like, I'm just sort of thinking about this, but like in kind of ways, like, so Angel and Cordy are kind of the inverse of each other in that regard. Whereas like Angel was so focused on helping, the other people because you know he hurt them he hurt other people in the past like Mm. almost to the detriment of himself Mm. and now it's like because he has sort of a selfish motivation or self-interested motivation um like it's actually a better situation than he was before now whereas with cordy you know has always been very highly focused on herself and now like you said, kind of has a more altruistic or at least more empathetic mm. understanding of other people. And that is also a good thing. So they're kind of like from separate directions coming closer to having yeah. a better balance. It's And it's not like, and I think that's, if anything, like that might be sort of the key here is that it's not about being altruistic or being selfish or being empathetic or being, you know, um, focused, but it's, it's about having the right balance of all of those things because they're all sort of important. Like you can't, 
ignore yourself for everyone else and you can't yeah. ignore everyone else for yourself. Like there, there yeah. has to be some kind of balancing mechanism going on there. I never really thought about it that way until we were just talking yeah. about it, but I think that no, it's works. true. And that those things which seem so contradictory don't have to be that in their proper place, they are complementary rather than, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, if they are contradictory, then that's when you have a problem, I think. You know, if you if you choose one and neglect the other, whereas, yeah, in kind of harmony, then you should be able to do all of those things. Um, and I think you get kind of that understanding between Angel and Cordelia at the end that, you know, like her kind of saying we have to help them and him saying we will like they do kind of meet in the middle and understand each other, I think. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so yeah, and as I was going to say, so like now, how do we apply all this to Wesley? Cause like, right. I feel like actually though, Wesley kind of has done some of this already. Mm -hmm. Um, and not, and like, I mean, he's certainly important in this episode, but I don't, I feel like he, like this was the decision he had to make when he was trying to decide whether he was still going to be a rogue demon hunter or not. You know what I mean? And <laughs> yeah. like, that's kind of funny, but like, I feel like, like his journey yeah. is kind of told elsewhere. And like, that was uh -huh. maybe the more pivotal point at that point for him. And uh -huh. so like now he is kind of like, I mean, he's, he, he, he knows that he wants to be here helping, you know, Angel do his thing. And like, he's the guidance he's offering like I think is actually pretty sound and a lot like I don't think this yeah I don't think for him even though he like gets hurt and has to go to the hospital and everything like I don't feel like yeah. this is like a huge change because I feel like he's already been right. doing kind of what he feels like he's meant to be doing at this point like he right he he like kind of recognizes that he belongs more here than he ever did as like a watcher or on his mm -hmm. own or whatever like this is you know, kind of he like he's already sort of come to those same conclusions. But I don't know. I mean, what what are your thoughts? Do you Well and and even as you said that, it made me think like again, this balance between totally for other people or totally for yourself. You know, you had him kind of the the company man with the watchers, mm. their kind of tool and puppet and, you know, kind of just parroting their beliefs a little bit. And then you had, like, the solo rogue demon hunter who's sort of, right. you know, this lone wolf on his own. And neither of those things really worked for him. And so, again, you find this kind of middle way of balance where he has an opinion and agency and can make decisions and give advice and be involved. But also, he's not on his own. He yeah. has people that he's working with and, you know people who are better at things than him and you know at some things you know mm -hmm. and who can make up for areas where he is lacking and vice versa he can fill in gaps where the others don't you know have the knowledge that he has and everything so yeah. it yeah like i think you're right like even just by coming to the show and deciding to stay he's sort of made that affirmation already um and maybe there's some other big decisions like i agree like this isn't a hugely 
pivotal episode for him. And maybe that's because he's had some of those already. And, you know, maybe we've got some more coming up um, that we don't know about yet. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I... Yeah, and I mean, I've I've already said, I think I've even said on the podcast, that I find Wesley to be one of the most intriguing character arcs. And sure. again, yeah, and this I'm is sure only we'll the first season of, of Angel. So like, to come up. Yeah, like yeah. there are definitely things that will happen. But yeah, I don't think this is one of them. Like I think, I think if anything, it's sort of Angel and Cordy pivoting around Wesley in a way. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of the stable one in this episode you know oddly enough like you know right. he's kind of the the one that is is grounding um you know and not that he doesn't i mean he has problems with the translations and stuff like he's certainly not perfect or anything but like yeah just that idea of like the advice that he gives in this episode uh both to cordy and angel in different sort of ways is pretty spot on though you know, yeah. it's like, it's again, it's that thing of like, you know, aiming the gun at the, you know, uh, big canister of, of gas, like mm-hmm. in a pinch, he kind of can bring it, you know, and, and yeah. this is sort of the, the intellectual version of that. Um, right. Kind Wesley's of good under pressure. Yeah. That's kind of the thing, the thing we've noticed, I think. So um, it's just every other time he's sort of awkward and clumsy and sure so. <laughs> well not as awkward as david no Jackson, so he has <laughs> i don't think anyone him. is quite that awkward <laughs> um yeah so all right in the last few minutes probably should at least mention um like the wolfram and heart yeah grouping and voca and anything we have to say about that whole sort of line um i mean voca we kind of talked about a little bit with regard to Cordy mm-hmm. um, and Angel a little bit. Um, he kills you. Interesting. Interesting that he can just go in and kill you. Like, I definitely didn't see that coming. Yeah. That they can just sort of be. They didn't either. Killed off by a demon. Apparently. No, <laughs> um, no, no, I think, I think you get, so I think you get the sense that, yeah, like this should not be the case. So, and, right. you know, I like we still don't know it like we've seen the oracles a couple times now but like we still don't know a ton about the whole mechanism of like the higher powers and sort of like mm. the senior partners at Wolfram and Hart like whoever they are or whatever they are like we still right. don't know like sort of how all that's working like there seems to be different l- planes and levels of things going on here right. um but yeah you definitely get the sense that like this is like I mean, they call it a temple. It's definitely sacred ground where, like, mm. this Voca demon should not be able to get into, but he does, and they're surprised. And not only does he get into it, like, it doesn't seem like they even make an attempt to flee. So, like, right, how he's able to, like, surprise them that quickly and, like, I mean, because, like, you can kind of see the big sky thing behind his back. Like, you know what I mean? Right, like, right. it shouldn't come as a huge shock to them, like... There's a big, well, and, like, there's this big hallway behind you. Go run down it, like, or at least try to. Right. <laughs> um, right. Well, and, like, th- they seem to me to be, like, these kind of semi-deity, yeah. like, magical higher beings. Themselves. Like, maybe they're not the top of the chain, but they're certainly not, like, 
regular people. Well, they certainly refer so, like, to angel in them as lower beings, you know, like... Right, you know. so, yeah, so that he, yeah, like, they don't make any attempt to get away, and that he can physically, you know, kill them. Um, and it kind of makes you wonder then, uh, okay, now... Are we, are they going to get replaced by, are like, are they replaceable by other oracles or other beings? Mm -hmm. Or is the relationship to the higher beings now compromised because we've severed this kind of right. middle connection? Um, I don't know. That's a question that I have is like, okay, so where do we go from here now how do the powers that be communicate to angel yeah um, and, and i mean we don't know how time flows or whatever but like certainly between when voca goes there and when angel goes there like there seems to be like a number of hours that pass you know what i mean right. and like their bodies are still laying there like nobody seems to have come and removed them <laughs> and like right, right. their spirits like, is anyone are still gonna notice hanging that, around yeah. so like yeah like there is this sort of sense of like there's like, this broken connection but is anybody gonna repair it yeah like <laughs> you we know? don't really know what's happening um with that so yeah no those are all good questions and obviously i'm not gonna try to answer any of them or anything but like i think yeah that's absolutely right like there is this was one connection um and we also know that so you know i guess what we don't know so cordy gets healed from like the thing that Voka does to her, which is like mm -hmm. to intensify, you know, mm -hmm. these feelings that she has. So the question there is like, you know, one, what is that mechanism? Like is Voka sort of mimicking the powers of the powers that be and like mm -hmm. giving her this like super enhanced sight or is he able to somehow control the powers that the powers that be gave to Cordy or like mm -hmm. whatever. And then like at the end, is it, is she now completely healed from the, like, mm. so is that like another way? Cause you, you know, remember from Doyle's explanation, like these visions were from the powers that be. So this was like another right. method of potential communication, even though it's right. sort of raw and, you know, not entirely optimal, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. you know, so does that mean like now this is another way in which they're cut off or, or is it like they're, she's just going to go back to kind of what she had before she's still going to have right. them. It's just going to be sort of occasional rather than, you know, constant and that kind of thing. And, and so like, there's these other things and like, we know, we know that Angel is sort of a champion of the powers that be, sort of unwittingly and un like he didn't choose to be, but he just right. is. So if that's the case, like how are they gonna support him if they support him at all? And Right. Right. You know, what sort of things are gonna change there. So But yeah, that the whole killing of the Oracles, like I mean, again, that's definitely the sense is that should not have happened and we're not sure mm -hmm. why it happened or how it was allowed to happen, but it yeah. did. And so yeah, leaves a lot of room for interpretation. Um, especially since now like angel sort of has his own motivation. So like what's his motivation of fighting for or with the powers that be sure. like, sure. Yeah, what responsibility does he have to, like, find out, answer any of these questions? Yeah. 
um, you know, if he's going to keep on fighting regardless, then, you know, um, then what does it matter? Or are they the agents of this prophecy and this reward? So maybe it, it does have a bit of relevance to him, whether or not he still has a connection to the past. Right. Like, yeah. How do you, how does he know if he's saving the right people? you know, to sort right. of fulfill this prophecy or whatever. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, very interesting. Um, well, besides the oracles, the other kind of middle management that we get is Holland. Um, <laughs> yeah. who, you know, we don't see do a whole lot this episode, but he's there and he's the guy who's sort of behind all the stuff, you know, he's, right. I mean, we don't really know exactly where he gets his orders from, but, you know, so presumably maybe he has, you know, the... the, the... He's kind of like an assigned project manager, like... Sure. With, with like, these underlings and Lindsay and, right. and Lila to, like, right. be the executors of the plan. But, yeah, he's kind of like the overseer and making sure that, like making sure that other people are making sure the moving parts are are moving. Right. And, and like, yeah, you get that sort of classic, like I have to be here, but I don't have to like it. And yeah. like everyone should just sort of have things ready when I arrive. And like, he's angry when they haven't even gotten to reading the Latin yet, you know, in the ritual. Right. He wants and... to walk in like just when they're performing like the juicy part of the, the spell yeah. and everything. Yeah. Um, but he's there for the so, photo op really is what it boils down to. Right. Right. Well, and to like be the diplomat, like he welcome, like welcome to Wolfram and Hart to the demon, like, right. you know, getting the credit for like the warm welcome and everything. Well, and um, like, like he has that attitude of, um, like Lindsay at one point in an earlier episode said like, you know, I hate it when I can't blame my failures on someone else. Like, in this instance, Holland can. He can blame him on Lindsay. Like, you know, the right. failures aren't his. They're, so yeah. he's kind of able to take that role of the happy yeah. greeter and, and be like, oh, yeah. yeah, oh, it's this guy's fault right here. You can kill him if you want, you know, like, or yeah. or I'll do it, you know, like, whatever your pleasure. <laughs> and, you know, he does sort of have that attitude of, of yeah, just sort of being the jovial, you know, let's go for a round on the golf course, you know, business meeting right, type right. thing. Right. Like we said, typical middle management. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Ready to blame um, others at a drop of a hat. Yeah. Um, and uh, with Lindsay too, um, you know, we get a little bit, we see him kind of confirming, you know, at least some, some of the choices he made last time. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, fighting for Wolfram and Hart uh, against Angel. Um, and they kind of, you know, I mean, we talked before about how you could interpret that choice in a lot of different ways, and maybe we shouldn't totally discount him yet and see where he might be going, you know, but they all read it as, like, a betrayal, you know, that oh, yeah. he's he's sold his soul for his silver, um, you know, right. and... Yeah, he's a complete, he's a complete sellout, basically. Um, 
And he doesn't really do much to contradict it. No, you know? he pretty he, much confirms that at the end. He pretty he? much <laughs> confirms it, um, you know, and kind of gleefully holds the scroll over the fire um, and is a little too assured of his own, you know, uh, place Which has been his Angel problem all his... along, isn't it? I mean, that's... Yeah. He, he doesn't quite learn <laughs> that, like, no. his, his own cockiness is his undoing. Yeah, uh, yeah, his... His pride gets in the way a little bit. So, yeah, so he loses a hand. Um, yeah. So that's not going to help with the whole um, liking of Angel thing. No. Um, I suspect that will put a crimp in their relationship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a a um, bigger crimp in their relationship. A bigger than it already yeah. was. Um, so, yeah, so it does kind of seem that he's kind of solidly on the the bad guy side at least yeah. for the time being um so um and then i i guess we should finish with the whole point of all of these conjuring the demons and getting the scroll and doing all the stuff that wolfram and hart's doing which is to conjure you know this this beast um, and they like sacrifice these vampires to it and they have it in this big cage and it's this whole big production. And then it turns out that it works. Um, and what we get is Darla, who I did not see. I wasn't, I, I mean, I was imagining, you know, some sort of literal like beast or monster. Like I wasn't necessarily sure. expecting to see someone that we knew. Right. Um, yeah, and there's, I mean, there's... So very interesting twist. There's not really any hint that it's going to be Darla, certainly. But, no, the, you know, the no. hint is, you know, that it's something specifically to take down Angel. Like that, mm -hmm. you know, because, like, that's why Voka's upset, right? It's like, oh, you know, I was going to, I was coming for the raising, which is the whole, you know, thing that we're doing to kind of take care of the problem. Right. But, and he, now the, problem but the problem is, is the putting a crimp in the plan. So, you know, so, like... Right. Yeah, there's not a specific uh, reason why you should think Darla. And, I mean, this is, right. you know, again, we're typical Whedon-esque kind of, you know, twist to, mm -hmm. you know, leave it. And and this is, um, so I think I mentioned to you, like, uh, whereas season four of Buffy finale was atypical, this was very mm -hmm. much the, like, typical sort of cliffhanger, big fight right. scene, you know. Yeah. Uh, end of a season which you know is appropriate for a first season i think like that's sure. fine um but but also kind of in keeping with darla's character to always be unexpected like whether she's like the innocent schoolgirl who turns into the vampire now when she comes back it's at like you know she's at this kind of low point you know she's not at all powerful and mm. like we've seen her being she's sort of this frightened animal in the cage. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's funny because like, yeah, we, I mean, Darla dies in season one and fairly early in season one. Pretty early. Like, yeah. And so, although we've seen her a fair in amount, flashback, right. it's all been right. flashbacks. And so like yeah. everything we really know about Darla is as a vampire one and mm. most of it in flashbacks, <laughs> you know? So like, right. I'm, well then, and and in, then in retrospect, I can see how they were hinting at that with all the flashbacks. It's sort of like, oh, you know, that was one of the reasons we had these flashbacks. I think is yeah. to 
put that in in, right. in your mind so that you remember her and know a little bit about her and right. her backstory. But it definitely didn't occur to me until yeah, I and, saw her. And I mean, it totally is appropriate, though, too, in a show about Angel that you're going to see Angel, you know... And, you, you know, you, we're going to see these origins of Angel in these flashbacks and that yeah. they're going to include Darla because we know we knew already that they were together for some time. Right. But, yeah, like you can definitely see how it's been building up to this. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, understand how it you didn't natural. see, see yeah. it building yeah. up to this. So, like, right. it's, which is kind of what the best twists oh, yeah. do. Oh, is, yeah. You know, no, I, they're total they're totally inevitable. But but unguessable before they happen right. um, um which is why i was so disappointed that i didn't get a text from you when like <laughs> you were watching it i'm sorry <laughs> no don't be sorry it's just like it's just one of those things it's like i i was sort of expecting it and then like a few days went by i'm like i wonder if she actually watched that episode yet like because <laughs> i feel like there should have been a text <laughs> i did i think i just as soon as my head hit the pillow yeah, fell asleep yeah, yeah. and totally forgot oh please um, i do that every week but, so but it did it did catch me by surprise, so it was well, very effective. So yeah, so now there's this whole other, and like and of course Angel doesn't know, doesn't know about, about her, this, yeah. Um, yeah, or anything like this is right, and we don't know anything about why she is being raised or right. Or, What's know, I mean, happen. to bring Angel down, but like why she can do that, we don't know. Um, yeah. So any any just off the cuff guesses or no? Um I mean not really. I mean, I guess the most obvious ideas would be either that to set her on him maybe as some sort of revenge thing of like, you know, would they use her to kind of almost like they did faith like they don't want to go after Angel, but maybe Darla will, you know? So kind of maybe giving her the ability to just sort of go take care of him for them. Um, or, I don't know, maybe kind of playing on some sort of sympathy of of maybe trying to get him to try to either save or redeem her and then, you know, using that as some sort of like a bait or something. Mm -hmm. Um those would be the two, kind of, yeah, just my two most obvious guesses. Just curious. Yeah. We'll see. Right. We will see. Well, all right. Um, we should probably end there. And so our next episode, we'll be actually talking about uh, the recaps of of the Buffy and Angel seasons that we just saw. So, yeah, we'll definitely be talking about all of that some more. All right, see you then.